Alright, so hello everyone and welcome back to the Sorted Skeptics, where today we're going to be talking a little bit about the coronavirus lockdown and some of the effects that uh, might be associated with keeping people in isolation. I'm going to be talking about the second and third order effects of, I guess, isolation in general, particularly the effects of solitary confinement within prison populations, because I think that might be a, an interesting allegory to compare mm. and contrast with our current prison population that we should just call the civilian population. So, let's dive right into it and talk uh, a little bit about some personal experience. Now, Tim, as a student therapist, you've probably been talking to a lot of people about their anxieties and fears surrounding coronavirus and some of the other, I guess, issues people are having with their lives. So do you want to talk a little bit about some of your personal experience there and uh, and what it's been like for people? Yeah, sure. Um, so even as a student therapist, I knew that I needed to maintain certain self-care habits, but due to the anxiety and depression that I was facing, even before this whole lockdown happened, um, I felt very limited as if my mind was overloaded and not functioning probably and I guess that's gonna happen when you're worrying about the food supply and what the hell's gonna happen to us with all this uncertainty right. and not knowing what's happening and overall I was uh, I was pretty pissed that there was no gym no library no dining in and worst of all, we were advised not to see our friends, mm -hmm. which is, you know, that whole social connection thing that right. we that we crave. And uh, it was kind of funny because a lot of my friends were okay with being <laughs> in social isolation, more some more of the introverted ones. Right. But I consider myself more a combo of introverted and extroverted, you know. No, and, and I totally hear where you're coming from because I would firmly place myself in the camp of people who were totally okay with just <laughs> hanging yeah. out by themselves. So it's uh, it's been paradise for me in terms of not having to yeah. deal with strangers all the time, but the uh, the lack of uh, close friends and all that stuff is uh, kind of getting to me a little bit. But I guess because I don't have too many of those, it's pretty easy to see people. So <laughs> yeah, was there anything else uh, you wanted to mention about your lockdown experience? Or? Yeah, the uh, the lockdown it's it's just been a, a, a really weird year for everybody. I mean, it's had uh, it's had its ups and downs. Uh, this year for me, uh, my father passed away three weeks ago. Uh, not mm -hmm. COVID related, uh, but it was it's still going to be difficult because we're not going to be able to have any sort of memorial service while all this lockdown crap is still going on. I guess if he was a Democrat politician, we could have a have a funeral across multiple states by this point, right? Of course, but uh, different rules for them than for the rest of us. So that's uh, that's been pretty challenging for uh, for my family. But uh, I mean, other than that, we've uh, we've been holding it down pretty well here. I think people in Canada are adjusting quite well to uh, what a, a lot of people are calling the new normal, which is a phrase I absolutely detest. But uh, <laughs> same here, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think we can uh, we can see that the uh, this new normal is probably going to involve a little bit more common sense about pathogen transmission and stuff that maybe for the past several decades we've just been kind of ignoring but you know now that the uh the ccp has been releasing its viruses into the world for the past 20 years i think we're finally starting to catch on that we should probably be uh, a little bit more careful about uh, how we interact with people and I, I don't really see a huge issue with that i don't like the 
the mask situation, I think the second and third order effects of a mass depersonalization effect, the likes of which the human race has never seen, are going to be way worse than any kind of second and third order effects mm. from a virus. Especially since they're making a mandatory in schools yep. in Ontario. Yep, and I mean, if, uh, if certain businesses wanted to say you need to wear a mask before you come in here, I can kind of see that would be not as much of an issue as the government saying you have to make sure people are wearing masks, otherwise we're going to fine you. Mm-hmm. So at this point, none of us really have a choice if you want to uh, patronize a business. It, you know, for their protection, you, you 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 have to wear a mask now, unfortunately. I think it's kind of stupid, but uh, we can all go around and look like train robbers, and that's just totally what how things look now, right? <laughs> yep, that's the new normal, apparently. Yeah, so as silly as that is, uh, I think that's probably going to be the reality for the next little while. So, I mean, I would do my best to, you know, support your local businesses as best you can. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. right now, if that means wearing a mask i think that's just what we have to do to make sure that they stay afloat uh i don't like it Mm. i think it's ridiculous and if uh if they had a sign on the front that says you don't need to wear a mask in here i would take it off you know i don't like wearing them outside and unless i'm in close proximity to people no couldn't care less yeah you know same here i I don't think it's going to save anybody you know even though that's the narrative and we have to take care of our elderly i understand that but mass depersonalization i don't think is the answer yeah, it's like how far <laughs> do right. we need to go? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we we you know if, if it only saves one life, nonsense, right? It's like okay, well, what about all the lives from you know mental health issues, suicide, car crashes from oxygen deprivation, all these kind of things? You know, it's it it's really frustrating, I guess, when someone presents an argument that completely ignores the other side of the argument and then pretends like it's objective, and then when mm. you present both sides, they think you're being wishy washy or not taking a stand or any of this it's it's almost or like irresponsible having, yeah yeah it's almost like nuance is a version of irresponsibility yeah. now it's like you know you're not uh, emotionally adhering to one side therefore you must hate old people or something like that <laughs> of course that's the the best uh, conclusion <laughs> so we wanted to take a look at some of the costs and benefits of the lockdown and We took a look at an article from the C2C Journal, and many of the costs of the coronavirus pandemic are the result of government policies requiring residents to self-isolate, keep a social distance from others, and limit public activities. Government orders closed numerous businesses, halted hospitality, travel, and education, delayed elective medical procedures in hospitals, and prohibited visits by families and friends of loved ones in care homes for the elderly. And... As you probably lately heard, there's they're saying there's going to be a, um, a a public health crisis because of all the backup of yep. surgeries. And- yeah, and I think that's unfortunate that a lot of people, when they hear elective surgeries, they're thinking tummy tucks and facelifts. But we're talking uh, elective surgeries, like there was the guy who died uh, because he couldn't get a stint mm-hmm. uh, put in. You remember that article from a little mm-hmm. while ago where this was a completely preventable death, but because elective surgeries were declined? then there's going to be a whole bunch of deaths associated with that as well. So to say that, you know, lockdown is a way of saving lives, it's like, that's uh, a little stupid. You yeah, know, it's a gross overgeneralization. Yeah, a gross oversimplification that is going to cost a lot of people their lives. Um, so the there's, you know, the widespread unemployment associated with it and all the mental health issues there, like the dramatic increases of loneliness, depression, interpersonal conflicts, divorce, alcohol consumption pain from untreated medical conditions and substance abuse and of course the subsequent suicides resulting from all of this right mm-hmm. but if you completely ignore that then it sounds totally reasonable to just shut down the entire economy to prevent a few people from getting sick 
right? Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and even look at the, like, in the U.S. where, they, you know, their attempted government intervention forced a bunch of old people into the old folks' homes in New York, and it was a bloodbath. You know, they had the highest death count of any state, even though their government intervention was the most draconian. Wow. So that, that says a lot right there. A little bit, yeah. It's almost as if the, the absolute worst thing that you could do, which would be forcing COVID patients into old folks' homes, is exactly what they did. And it's it's almost like you couldn't have planned it any better. I mean, I think it was had more to do with ignorance than it did with malice. You know, I think that's a much safer bet to assume that people are just stupid and don't know what they're doing. And that's what resulted in all these deaths rather than them thinking, ooh, let's, let's get rid of all these old people. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. they're, they're probably not that malevolent, but they probably are that dumb. Yeah, I agree with that. So, Um, We also need to consider some of the economic um, results. So the loss from this foregone production will never be recovered. It is gone forever. The magnitude of the loss can be found in forecasts of GDP. So we'll use figures from the International Monetary Fund. According to the IMF's most recent estimates, Canada's GDP in 2020 will be 6.5% below that of 2019. Since GDP in 2019 was 1.7 trillion, the value of reduced output in 2020 is thus 113 billion. Yeah, so when you combine the loss of economic output with, I guess, the shutting down of most small businesses that can't afford to stay afloat, as well as all the printing of money to try to keep everybody afloat, Mm -hmm. you're going to talk about severe damage to our currency that might never come back. You know, Mm -hmm. when you're paying $17 for a bag of apples that used to cost six. It's not like the bag of apples is really worth anymore. It's just what you're buying it with is worth so much less, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you could artificially bid up the cost of goods and services with all this printed money, everything just gets more expensive because you don't actually have any more productivity to, to offset that, right? Mm-hmm. So the cumulative economic costs arising from the coronavirus will undoubtedly be much higher than this as any uh, recovery is likely to take much longer than a year. Uh, The OECD Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, for example, recently issued an alert warning of the possibility of a second wave of COVID. Now, we've heard about this second wave a lot, and the only way the second wave can occur is if you had a lockdown uh, and then people come back out of it. So Sweden, for example, hasn't really seen any new deaths, uh, and this is uh, just beginning of August. So a lot of the data that we have here, uh, it has been collected over the last few months, so we're going to try to keep it as updated as we can, but... Unfortunately, the official sources that are providing this data seem to keep changing their answer and completely contradicting themselves week to week. Uh, I mean, if you look back in March, April, what they were saying about the mask wearing, they were basically discouraging it and cause it to, basically telling other people that that you just want healthcare workers to not have any masks. <laughs> it's like, what? You know, so we go from, you know, don't wear a mask because you're going to take them away from the people who need them to if you don't wear a mask, you want to kill old people. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is how the narrative has shifted back and forth and back and forth. And it's becoming pretty clear this is probably more about control than it is about saving anyone's life. And just interesting, too, the timing of the mandatory masks when everything's kind of dying down. A little bit, yeah. So, I mean, even as the numbers are plummeting, now all of a sudden we're getting all these draconian laws. I mean, they probably would have been more effective if they implemented them as the cases were rising. Mm-hmm. People would have been more accepting of them. But if the cases are already going down and now the government's still grabbing for more power, I think most people are seeing right through it. That's good. So the cumulative economic costs, all right, so it is important to note that the government payments to individuals on businesses to prevent final financial suffering and bankruptcies, including such things as the CERB, corporate subsidies, and many other 
new government programs are not considered a cost in this analysis. So despite the massive deficits presently being incurred, these extra public expenditures do not necessarily lead to loss of output over the short term. Or these payments are added to the public debt. Yeah, so if all of a sudden you just decide that running up a credit card bill is not actually debt, and you can just redefine the word, then it's like, oh, perfect, then we can just print as much money as we want. You know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it must be pretty nice to be able to type whatever amount you want into your own bank account, but I think that also comes with certain costs. Mm-hmm. And with this public debt, which in the future will require interest payments made by taking money from some Canadian taxpayers and transferring it to other Can Canadians, those who hold the debt. Right. So basically, you're just you're just transferring the money to future generations. Like, that's where the, you're kicking the can down the road and having them pay it off. Mm -hmm. Right. So it, it is kind of insidious that as a as a society, as much as I hate that phrase, we've sort of collectively decided that, OK, guys, we're just going to all sign up for a credit card and put it in our grandchildren's names. And then we can buy whatever we want, and the people that are pay for it don't even exist yet, mm -hmm. right? And they make it so easy to apply, right? And then, and then once you know they come along and they complain about, well, how come there's no public services left because we can't afford them because we're spending all this money on interest? They'll be like, oh, well, you're just being selfish, <laughs> right? So you know, we've collectively decided to just kick the can down the road, build the grandchildren for it, and we could use it to spend for spend on largesse in the here and now, right? And we somehow feel this isn't going to have any consequences. Like right now yeah. in Ontario, it's something like a billion dollars a month just on interest payments. Jesus. You know, it's going to get to the point where the interest payments are the only thing the tax base is going to cover. Right? Wow. So the way it would work is we pay taxes and, mm. we, and we convince everybody that what we're paying in taxes pays for the services that we use. Whereas if it did, why do we need to be taxed for them? You could just buy them yourself. Right? Mm -hmm. But what it actually does is the taxes just cover the interest payments on the money being printed. So right. you, can, you can print all this money... And then you can use it to spend on services so you can get lots of votes. But then nobody's like, oh, look at this. I only pay like $1,000 a year in tax, but I'm getting $10,000 worth of services. And somehow people just don't do the math and think that this is actually sustainable. Mm, it's a short-term thinking. That's oh, yeah. Been yeah, it's one, of the, it's one of the worst examples of intergenerational theft I've ever seen. So in the absence of an effective vaccine, the ICL model predicts four deaths per thousand population if non-pharmaceutical interventions, i.e. social distancing, quarantining, are implemented, and eight deaths per thousand without these in interventions. In other words, the ICL model predicts that mitigation will halve the number of fatalities. Given that the actual number of deaths in Canada, as in the middle of June, was 8,300, this means the estimated number of deaths prevented is also 8,300. But this figure does not take account for the fact that pandemic fighting policies have increased unemployment, which is widely acknowledged to increase the prevalence of suicides. A recent study projects Canada will experience approximately an additional 2,100 suicides due to the coronavirus. Subtracting these deaths from the 8,300 fatalities prevented by government policy yields 6,200 net deaths prevented. Not considered in this calculation as the fact more than 90% of the deaths in Canada attributed to the COVID-19 virus involve individuals over the age of 60, many of whom already had shortened life experiences due to pre-existing medical conditions. Right, and this is going to be one of the big problems when you see the stats where they're not actually able to st statistically distinguish between mm -hmm. people who died from COVID and people who died with COVID, mm. right? Because whenever you're dealing with a virus, uh, whenever you're dealing with any serious illness, it's never the illness itself that kills you. It's something else associated with the illness, Right, So it's either your respiratory system shuts down, your digestive system shuts down, you have an aneurysm, you have a heart attack, some other key system fails, and that is what kills you. But it's usually mm -hmm. the disease that causes it. So if you test for the disease and be like, yes, this person who died of a heart attack died from COVID, 
or this person who crashed their motorcycle into a tree and tested positive for COVID died of COVID. Right? It's, so it's easy to conflate. Right. It's And like there was take cases in the States where they had certain labs that were reporting 100% positive cases. Like every single case you tested was positive. 100%. Everyone. Yep. 100%. Oh, you didn't have to report the negative results. Nope. Didn't have to report them. Oh, okay. So that's how they were all 100%. You only reported the ones that were positive. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because that's, that's how objective science works, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. So um, as we can see, the costs outweigh the benefits four to one. And having separately estimated the costs and benefits of the government response to the coronavirus pandemic, we must now bring our two calculations together. So dividing the total estimated cost of $226 billion as lost output by the 6,200 lives saved produces an estimated economic cost of $36.4 million per life saved. Again, yes, this assessment is based on a series of assumptions enumerated above, all of which can be readily challenged, but any reasonable tweaks to costs incurred or lives saved seem unlikely to change the basic conclusion. So as an expenditure of 36.4 million for each life saved to date from COVID-19, a reasonable or cost-effective policy. And that's a that's a perfectly legitimate question, right? Is it, uh, you know, it's like, well, what's the value of one life? Well, that's according to these statistics, it's $36.4 million per life. Is that cost-effective or sustainable? I don't know. That doesn't really seem to be a, a philosophical question. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's, mm-hmm. that's more of a political question, but mm-hmm. when you reduce the value of a human life to a concrete figure like that, you can start to do the math and say, okay, well, how much do we spend on lives in other circumstances? And then maybe we can do a much more apples-to-apples comparison in that case. But people who will tell you that uh, the cost is irrelevant to saving even one life, these are people that are trying to manipulate you. These are not people that have any objective interest in the truth. They're basically just saying, do exactly what I want, otherwise you want these innocent people to die, which, of course, Mm. is brutally disingenuous. Yeah, you're but a horrible person. Basically, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, once, once you know, the, the person you're talking to resorts to these kind of emotional attacks, I don't really think you're having a conversation anymore. They're mostly just arguing with their own assumptions. So I wouldn't take that shit too personally. So let's talk a little bit about some of the effects of the lockdown and the isolation. And this is where I want to discuss some of the psychological effects of solitary confinement. So uh, I'm going to try to go through and uh, give you some of the citations as we go. And the uh, we'll keep the references in the description if you guys want to look at some of this material yourself. Uh, so confined inmates experience a multitude of psychological effects, including emotional, cognitive, and psychosis-related symptoms. Solitary confinement is considered harmful to the mental health of inmates because it restricts meaningful social contact, a psychological stimulus that humans need in order to remain healthy and functioning. That's from Smith, 2006. Longer, uh, longer stays in solitary confinement worsen mental health symptoms that have serious emotional and behavioral consequences. So, the majority of those held in solitary confinement experience adverse emotional effects that can range from acute to chronic, depending on the individual and the length of stay in isolation. Confined prisoners also report feelings of panic and rage, including irritability, hostility, and poor impulse control. Additionally, they frequently exhibit symptoms of anxiety that vary from low levels of stress to severe panic attacks. Isolated inmates also experience symptoms of depression, such as hopelessness, mood swings, and withdrawal. These depressive symptoms may even escalate uh, to thoughts of self-harm and suicide. As compared to the general prison population, the rates of suicide and self-harm, such as cutting and banging one's head against the cell wall, are particularly high in prisoners assigned to solitary confinement. 
So inmates' cognitive processes tend to deteriorate while they're in isolation. Some confined inmates report memory loss and a significant portion of isolated inmates report impaired concentration. Many are unable to read or watch television since these activities are their few sources of entertainment. Confined inmates also report feeling extremely confused and disoriented in time and space. This is kind of interesting because I had like three papers mm -hmm. to write for my um, for my schooling, and yeah. it was just really hard to muster up any motivation. If I did, it would come later in the day mm -hmm. when I was a bit more focused, and um, since I was sleeping in a lot, which apparently a lot of other people were doing too from right. the loss of routine, that mm -hmm. was kind of messing up my cognitive abilities as well right no so. i totally hear you man like i haven't been able to pick up a book in months like mm -hmm. i've just started getting back into it now and i've been getting back into to reading as much as i can but for those first few months from about like late march to like june july i couldn't concentrate on anything like i would read through mm. a page of a book completely forget what i just read have to go back and read it and not remember a thing like i don't mm -hmm. remember just reading that but i remember my eyes going down the page but my mind would wander. It would start thinking about everything that's kind of going on around me and stuff like that. And the only thing that would I could really concentrate on and digest was social media and news sources. And yeah. that wasn't helping either. Right. <laughs> so I just I just stopped using it. I I would put a I put a timer on my phone for social media for an hour a day. And yeah. I, I try not to even get close to it now. Like I'll scroll through it, look for some notifications, maybe check out a couple articles, but other than that, I mean, the, the time spent just scrolling through social media, just getting angrier and angrier as you go, like as much as yeah. I love that dopamine rush, like, I gotta cut that shit out. Yeah, know? yeah, that's a key realization, too. And uh, for me, looking at social media, that was, in a way, kind of one way I coped, but also I think it ramped up my, my anxiety as well. And mm -hmm. once I finally stopped using it, like, in the mornings, I noticed a pretty big difference. But it, it just kind of feeds more into the fear and anxiety that we're already ha having. And social media, it's so easy to, to ingest, right? And yeah. I found looking at YouTube videos was kind of kind of um, helpful and easy as well. But basically, yeah. I didn't feel like doing anything too intense or that would just because of the uh, big cognitive load. Yeah, the information was... overload, it's just so exhausting, yeah. right? And if, yeah. uh, if all we're doing is uh, constantly just consuming news sources and just trying to fill our minds with with information as a distraction, it uh, mm. it can definitely prevent us from I guess addressing those emotional issues under underlying all those things. Mm -hmm. But I find mm. as things uh, have kind of readjusted a little bit, I'm kind of getting used to the way things are. Mm -hmm. Some of that same that concentration is coming back a little bit. Yeah, thankfully. And um, another um, confinement-related psychological symptom that inmates may experience is disruptive thinking, defined as an inability to maintain a coherent flow of thoughts. This disrupted thinking can result in symptoms of psychosis. Inmates who exhibit these symptoms of psychosis often report experiencing hallucinations, illusions, and intense paranoia, such as a persistent belief that they are being persecuted. In extreme cases, inmates have become paranoid to the point that they exhibit full-blown psychosis that requires hospitalization. Now, I think it's uh, an interesting thing that uh, uh, Shalev's 2008 paper points out here is the uh, such as a persistent belief that they are being persecuted, right? Mm. Have you guys happened to notice around there's a lot of people burning down federal buildings and tearing down statues that seem to be completely convinced that they are being persecuted despite being the least persecuted people in human history? 
And mm-hmm. I think that this is, like, even though this has been going on forever with Extinction Rebellion and all these crazy uh, leftist activist types, uh, they've been doing this for years, but it seems like right before the the election in November, it seems to be kind of ramping up to fever pitch. And I think a lot of it probably has to do with people being stuck in isolation, going crazy because they don't have anybody to bounce their ideas off of, and mm-hmm. then kind of feeling that they're being persecuted. Mm-hmm. You get together with a bunch of other people who also agree with that, and then all of a sudden you've got a mob that wants to go burn everything down. So yeah, I think that might have uh, isolation maybe be uh, playing a role in that as well. Yeah, a great deal of incubated anger and rage, and yep. I guess not having the proper outlet for it. So Benjamin and Lux stated that evidence overwhelmingly indicates that solitary confinement alone, even in the absence of physical brutality or unhygienic conditions, can produce emotional damage, decline in mental functioning, and even the most extreme forms of psychopathology, such as depersonalization, hallucination and delusions yeah that's uh that's not uh all that great and i don't think it takes too long for people being in solitary confinement to start experiencing some of these uh these symptoms right uh miller did a study in uh, 94 with a study of 30 prisoners in a kentucky prison and he similarly found that inmates housed in the most restrictive environments uh, so this would be punitive segregation uh, they reported significantly higher levels of psychological distress symptoms such as anxiety and hostility than inmates in the general population so there may be a level of restriction that uh, instead of solving administrative problems becomes both a mental health issue <laughs> and uh, a further problem for the prison administration. So uh, a lot of times people will get thrown into solitary confinement because it's seen as a way of solving a problem, but often it just causes twice as many problems when you pull them out of solitary confinement and they're just as bad as they were before, but now they are full of anxiety and hostility and they've lost any social skills they might have had when they went in there. Mm-hmm. So not ideal and may have problems being aligned with reality. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. So if they were having problems with that before, it's not something that solitary confinement's going to help. So Hans Talk coined the term isolation panic to describe the experiences of isolated prisoners. Symptoms of this syndrome include a feeling of abandonment, dead-end desperation, helplessness, tension. It is a physical reaction, a demand for release, or a need to escape at all costs. Isolated prisoners feel caged rather than confined, abandoned rather than alone. Suffocated rather than isolated, they react to solitary confinement with surges of panic or rage. They lose control, break down, regress. Yeah, so what you're basically talking about is like a complete dissolution of their personality, mm. which is really bizarre. It's almost like, you know how uh, like the air pressure at atmospheric pressure keeps our bodies from basically dissolving into the air? It's it's that that air pressure that mm. keeps everything together because we've evolved with atmospheric pressure. So that's why when we go into space, we just like explode. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think the same thing occurs with people's ego and the the way that it gets, I guess, repressed a little bit by the people around them. Part of that ego repression is going to be not going totally crazy. So having other people around kind of stops those thoughts from getting a little bit too out of hand. So if you're completely by yourself and you start to entertain delusions that maybe you're the only person on the entire planet and there's nobody around to convince you otherwise, eventually your mind's going to start to believe that's true. Yeah. Because you have no feedback in the other direction. No way to reality test. Yeah, no way to reality test. Exactly. So one of the problems most commonly reported by prisoners who were isolated is that they found it hard to distinguish between reality and their thoughts or found reality so painful that they created their own fantasy world. Researchers link such incidents to the absence of external stimuli, which results in the brain starting to create its own stimulation, manifesting in fantasy and hallucinations. 
you get sensitive to noise, the plumbing system, the water rushes through the pipes, it's too loud, gets in your nerves, I can't stand it. Meals, I can't stand the smells, the only thing I can stand is the bread. This is from Gracian, 1983. Yeah, so that would be uh, just a quote from a prisoner, I guess, who had to go uh, mm -hmm. go through all that. But I find it interesting the, uh, the if people find reality so painful that they create their own fantasy world. Uh, I know Joe Rogan kind of got in a bit of trouble recently for shitting on video games for this mm. very reason, right? It's mm. like if, if it, the video game world is preferable to the real world, it can be mm. very dangerous because instead of developing yourself in the real world, you might just try to level up in the fake world. And it gives you the impression that you're moving forward like it tricks your mind like that but mm. it doesn't actually result in anything so yeah. if, if reality is so painful that it's easy to just i guess dive into video games i mean i've been there i mean i've been like that for a long time but i find now that it's it's just a waste of time you know it's right. fun and everything i don't have a problem in that regard but uh the idea that you i guess have an emotional investment in that kind of entertainment uh, that could be very a very slippery slope mm -hmm. you know yeah i mean it's um it's a source for like a dopamine rush right. too that you might not be getting in other places and give you a sense of um, accomplishment. Right, and moving towards a goal because that's the way the dopaminergic system works. It'll give you that little hit of pleasure every time you feel yourself moving towards a desired goal. And mm -hmm. video games are basically designed to make that a very, very constant drip. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. so you're, gonna, you're making a little bit of progress here, a little bit of progress there, but the dopamine is so consistent that everything else compared to it can be very dull. And that, mm -hmm. that can be very dangerous. Uh, yeah. So here's another quote from uh, from a prisoner uh, from the Shalev study. Uh, let's see here. So sometimes I felt like I was losing my mind or that I had lost it already. You know, holding conversations with myself. I had conversations with people. I mean, dialogues, long dialogues with people. Some of them I knew, some of them I don't know. There were times when the darkness wasn't dark. I could see faces. I think that I found out that I may be hallucinating when I touched my eyes and my eyes were open so that I knew I wasn't dreaming. After a while, I thought maybe I will die in there. I really thought I would. So you can see this guy, like if, if you gotta basically poke yourself in the eye to determine whether or not you can see, that's that's messed up, man. That's mm -hmm. that's pretty crazy. He's like, well, I thought I was dreaming, so I poked myself in the eye and I, it was squishy, so I guess my eye was open and I wasn't dreaming. <laughs> oh, 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 man. <laughs> that's wild. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, I found it strange, you know, how a grown man, a very big grown man, break down to a light. That's what that place can do. Once you lose your mind, you don't know right from wrong. You don't know that you're breaking a rule. You don't know what to do exactly. So I guess the uh, the sound of a buzzing light bulb would make enough for like a giant grown man, violent prisoner, to just break down in tears because he can't stand the sound of a buzzing light. It's like holy crap. Yeah. You know, so without having other people around, I mean that that kind of stuff can just get to you, right? Sounds very confusing overall. Yeah, no kidding. So, uh, uh, let's see. Describing himself as a graduate of 1,000 days in segregation, he wrote, Fantasizing and daydreaming become uh, prevalent pastimes, and the obvious danger here is that this activity could become a permanent feature of the mind with the consequent disadvantage of not knowing at times whether you're in reality or fantasy. Wow. Yeah, so the inability to distinguish reality from fantasy is something that after, you know, a few months in solitary confinement, that can just break and become a permanent feature of the mind, where you can just start, your mind can just, just wander randomly. Because that's just mm. what it's been trained to do with, yeah. in the absence of any other uh, stimulation. Yeah. What so, else are you going to do when you're just between four walls? Basically, yeah. No kidding. And then, like, I think that's uh, that's all they really have in their whole world, right? So uh, other signs and symptoms that uh, some people have reported, so you got heart palpitations, so that would be a strong or rapid heartbeat while you're just doing nothing. Uh, diaphoresis, so sudden excessive sweating. Uh, insomnia, I guess not falling asleep. 
uh, back and joint pains, deterioration of eyesight, poor appetite, weight loss, and sometimes diarrhea, uh, lethargy and weakness, uh, shaking, feeling cold, uh, and aggravating of pre-existing medical conditions. So basically, like everything that'll be associated with a stress response, that seems to be like what it's like in all isolation, 24 hours a day, right? Mm-hmm. And um, each of the three main factors inherent in solitary confinement, social isolation, reduced environmental stimulation, and loss of control over most all aspects of daily life is potentially distressing. So social well-being is seen by the World Health Organization as integral to the definition of health. Yes, uh, so the World Health Organization is its <laughs> definition of health. You know, and now, of course, the World Health Organization is saying, well, you know, I know we said that, but... <laughs> You know, it turns out that, uh, you know, some people's physical health is more important than everybody's mental health. You know, and some people's economic success is obviously not as important as other people's. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, these are decisions that I don't think we should turn over to an unelectable or unaccountable bureaucracy like the World Health Organization, which uh, basically is just doing whatever the Chinese government asks it to do anyway. So, uh, I wouldn't really take anything the WHO says with, with much seriousness at this point. Uh, so even when isolated prisoners do not show any obvious symptoms, uh, upon release from isolation, they can become uncomfortable in social situations and avoid them with negative consequences for subsequent social functioning in both the prison community and the outside community. Again, undermining the likelihood of successful resettlement. So when people are stuck in isolation for prolonged periods of time, they almost lose the ability to function in social circumstances. You know, it's a, a practiced skill, a learned skill. And if you just go without it for long enough, then all of a sudden you come back, you might find that being around people is just way more frustrating than it used to be. You know, you're like, mm -hmm. why am I putting up with this? I can just go over there and be by myself. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think that is going to have some serious dangers for our ability to maintain cohesion as a community and as a society. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this is going to be one of the biggest threats to undermining Western civilization is undermining people's ability to get along by forcing them to stay apart for long enough that they lose the ability to do it. And it's mm -hmm. not like we have any institutions that teach these skills. They're just sort of expected, you know, you go through the public school system, you learn how to be socialized, quote-unquote. And, you know, you see people coming out of the public schools, I, I wouldn't exactly call them the definition of socialized. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you know? and for me, it's not enough to have, like, Zoom video conversations with people. Hmm. There's just something about being with a person that just makes it I think so. easier to, you know, connect with. And, and I think we underestimate that at our own peril, right? If we think that uh, video calls are going to be able to replace that. I mean, I see mm. the temptation, right? It's like, well, I don't have to drive. I don't have to go anywhere. I can just pull out my phone and do a little video chat. It's like, yeah, you can see the the expressions. It's probably better than voice, and it's probably better than text, but it's probably not as good as face-to-face. -face. Just yeah, saying. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, let's see here. You sit in solitary confinement, stewing in nothingness. Not merely your own nothingness, but the nothingness of society, others, and the world. The lethargy of months that add up to years in a cell, alone, entwines itself with every physical activity of the living body and strangles it slowly to death, the horrible decay of the truly living death. You no longer do push-ups or other physical exercise in your small cell. You can no longer pace the four steps back and forth across your cell. You no longer masturbate. You can no longer call forth visions of eroticism in any form. Time descends in your cell like the lid of a coffin in which you lie and watch it as it slowly closes over you. Solitary confinement in a prison can alter the ontological makeup of a stone. That's from Abbott, 1982. Wow. 
That sounds that, like a that, that's crazy, eh? Like nothingness. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like you want to th- you like you look around and you look at the nihilism that engulfs our society now, where people have lost all faith in the grand narratives, and you mm. think that's nihilistic? Man, think about being in a in one of these cells where you can't even walk anymore. You're like, well, I could do push-ups and all that, but you've lost all motivation for that. Like you literally have nothing better to do, but you just don't do it. You know, mm-hmm. that, that is the destruction of the human spirit right there. Mm. I had to be reminded by a friend, actually. He encouraged me to, to do some push-ups. It actually did help yeah. a little bit. So it was kind of finding these other little things to help you, to help me through this. Um, right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I would compare it to almost like an electrical circuit. If you don't have a load in that electrical circuit to resist the flow of electricity, you just burn out. Right, right, right. So you, you got to put some kind of load in your circuit, whether that's picking up a bag of concrete and lifting it over your head ten times, you know, go out in the woods for a couple hours and walk around mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. push, right? Do some squats, do some deadlifts, do something to make your body suffer. And then mm-hmm. the suffering that you adopt voluntarily means you probably won't have to suffer in some other way later. You know, like when you walk and you twist your ankle because you don't have any muscles in your legs, you know? Right, that's right. That's bad news. So if you do the suffering now, you have way less suffering later, but there is no option for no suffering. You know, you try to pursue the life of no suffering, you're going to suffer worse than anybody. Right? True, true. I mean, like, look at the people now that look like they have it easy, and they're the most miserable people in the world. Right? But the people that have to toil and work hard and push themselves every day to provide for their families, they're the ones that actually experience genuine happiness. Mm-hmm. And I kept wanting to delay things more and more and more, but that just made things worse. Then you and... get used to delaying things. Yeah. You learn know, yeah. that's an acceptable circumstance, but eventually if you just tell yourself, nope, gonna go do it, and then you mm-hmm. do, it it, uh, it it trains your body to get new habits, and that'll take a few weeks. But if yeah. you just force yourself to do it, then all of a sudden you don't have to force yourself anymore. Then you kind of you miss it, you want to get back at it and all that stuff, so... Yeah, and you won't have to deal with as much of a guilty conscience on top of right. everything else. <laughs> yeah, yep. you will sleep easy without a guilty conscience, <laughs> but adopt that suffering. So let's see what else here. Uh, Scott and Gendro from 1969, they got a quote here. A drop in sensory input through sensory restriction produces a drop in mental alertness, an inability to concentrate, a drop in planning and motivation, together with a drop in physical activity in the speech and motor systems. In prison life, boredom generates boredom. A drop in stimulus input results in mental sluggishness. Uh, disinclination to learn and a correlated drop in planning, motivation, and physical activity. So this is a cycle that will feed back into itself. If you're going to get stuck in social isolation, either from solitary confinement or from a government-mandated lockdown, you're going to get mentally sluggish if you don't maintain that stimulation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because... Even though I was checking social media and stuff, I didn't really feel like doing much research Mm -hmm. or learning too much. I just don't think my mind was ready to take on a lot of information at that time. So I just kind of remained stuck and uh, dealt with that, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's just kind of interesting how that can kind of build up and leading you wanting to... um, or leading to a certain mental deterioration right. overall. And um... and, that, and that's going to be very dangerous for all of us, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like what happens when we have a generation that's now twice as mentally sluggish as the generation before it, mm-hmm. right? How do exactly. we recover from that without going through destructively hard times? You know what I mean? Exactly, like, yeah. Uh, you remember the old axiom, what was it? Uh, 
strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times, and then the hard times create strong men. I've been seeing that meme lately. Yeah, that's been going around like crazy, because I think right now we are in the process of the hard times creating the strong men, right? Yeah. I think that's where we are right now. And for you guys listening, you have to determine whether or not you want to be part of that category or not. You either want to be a strong man or you want to be a weak man. And I'm not talking to the women in this case. This is a metaphor. Just just relax, ladies, all right? <laughs> what I'm talking about is... And, and you know what? From the female perspective, do you want to be with a strong man or do you want to be with a weak man? Because if you think strong men are dangerous, you've never met a really weak man. Because weak men are way more dangerous than strong men. Right? Yeah, and at the end of the day, we do have to bear some sort of suffering. And um... If you're a weak man, you're going to ask that suffering to be borne by others. Right? But if you're a strong man, you can bear it for yourself. And if we were all in that circumstance, I think we'd be a lot better off than having some people be strong and some people be mm. weak. You know, I think if everybody was strong and made the effort, and, that, and, I'm, and I'm not just talking about physical strength, I'm talking about mental, emotional, and spiritual yeah, strength as well. Yeah. But let's not try to turn this into a gym bro thing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously physical exercise is important, but you don't want to just make that the only aspect of your strength if you're focused solely on the physical, but you don't read books. You're just going to be a knuckle-dragging idiot, right? If all you do is read books, but you don't lift, you're just going to be kind of a feckless geek, mm-hmm. right? But what mm-hmm. if you were both? Right, mm-hmm. that'd be better balance. Right, but I mean, like, look at the the both of the worst circumstances. If you were an idiot and you were weak, you're basically useless to everybody, right? But if you're really strong mentally and really strong physically, then the you know you can do anything you want. Mm. And unfortunately, you know, if if you choose poorly in that regard, you could cause a lot of damage. But if you choose to go the path of the good, that strength will serve the good, right? Mm-hmm. But it- the weakness will serve evil. Yeah, you don't necessarily have to take a thousand pound weight, whether right. mentally or, or physically. You yeah. can start small and build yourself. You have yourself to start up. small because if you don't, you're just going to fail, and then you're yeah. going to lose you're motivation gonna... and all that. But yeah, overwhelm if... yourself. Yeah, and that's where the patience comes in, right? It's like, okay, yeah. well, maybe I pick up a one pound weight today, a two pound weight tomorrow, a three pound weight the yeah. next, and, and you know what I mean, right? And, yeah. And you sort of just stagger it so that every time you're doing it, it's a little bit harder, mm-hmm. right? And and it's mm-hmm. going to be that constant growth forward. And acknowledging that there isn't really a finish line there. You know, you're never going to get to a point where your work is done. And I think mm. that's pretty sweet, because if it did, like, that that would kind of suck. It's like, oh, well, I've done everything i got to do now. i just got to sit around and wait to die. You know? Not an ideal circumstance, but continuously pushing up that hill with that heavy-ass weight, I don't think anyone has anything better to do, frankly. <laughs> yeah, and I think if one thing with this whole you know, lockdown coronavirus thing, it's taught us that, that there is always more to learn, you mm-hmm. know, and... Yeah, the world is filled with an infinite number of facts. And if you're becoming nihilistic, you might have to subtly accept that, you know, all of the world's problems have been solved, because how else could you be nihilistic, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing left for us to do. It's like, that's obviously fake. There's so many things that we still have left to fix in the world, and I think that gives... Mm-hmm. You know, it gives me motivation, right? Because it means like, okay, well, there's something that we can actually do here. There's some direction we can orient ourselves that'll be better for us and better for everyone around us now and into the future. Mm-hmm. Eddie? Yeah. Yeah, and I was like, what, what else could we possibly do that's better than that? Exactly. I mean, that gives you a better sense of purpose. Yeah. <laughs> for and, sure. And it also it... gives you something to run away from, too. Because we know what happens if we don't do that. If you mm-hmm. succumb to evil, you succumb to weakness, all that shit. Yeah. Like, look what happens. Look in the 20th it'll, century. It'll just make the meaning crisis even worse. Oh, that too, yeah. Yeah, but uh, 
another thing too I found of course more people doing gardening and I found myself even just uh, going into yeah just weeding like um, front and back mm -hmm. my front and backyard that was something that kind of helped me kind of cope as well and gave me um, something to get my body moving and um, just another activity that had uh, purpose right in the day you know creating and that habitable order out of chaos yeah right? yeah exactly and, and those small things can be pretty effective too. right and making the world just that little bit more beautiful i think that orients us in a much better direction mm -hmm. you and know you, and you can get a sense of satisfaction right because you can see the, the end result and realize yeah this is something that i helped to beautify exactly and yeah. i think the uh the highest order principles that we have to orient ourselves towards beauty is the right location for that Mm-hmm. And if we have to ask ourselves, do we want to make things worse or better? It's <laughs> way easier to make things worse. Way <laughs> easier to make things worse. So that's why you got to be super careful about the kind of changes you want to make and the kind of other consequences that might be associated after the fact. So, back Absolutely. to the book. However, in the case of solitary confinement, this control is extreme and prisoners have few avenues or areas in which they can exercise personal autonomy. They're completely dependent on the staff for the provisions of all their basic needs when this degree of control is exercised over long periods of time, the psychological impact is proportionately greater. So I think this is really important because this shows what happens when people are dependent on others for all of their basic needs. And what happens mm. to people if they do that for an extended period of time? It's like you lose the ability to like, live for yourself. And that has a huge impact on people's psyche because they know they are completely dependent on others. They have no autonomy. They have no agency. And that's, that's not the proper orientation for a human being. I don't think, no, you know, no. people need to have agency. They need to know they can make a ch uh, their, their own choices in the world. And when you take that away from people out of some misguided, you know, it's for their own good bullshit, then, uh, then you destroy those people, mm -hmm. which is a little mm -hmm. ironic considering you were trying to help them to begin with, but your own ignorance and ego kind of caused them to be destroyed in the process. So mm -hmm. a little ironic, a little sad. So, you know, watch out with that shit. Absolutely. Um, it's, it can be so easy just just to get used to yeah dependency mm -hmm. especially with all these with everything that was was happening yeah during during the lockdown yeah sure. you're, uh, it's you're, a deadly you're, slippery slope exactly your mind and body will start to to realize like okay well if i'm being weighted on hand and foot maybe i'm not capable of taking care of myself and you know if you want a recipe for depression and anxiety telling yourself you can't take care of yourself is a great way to go Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I've always found helping, helping myself out of that hole was just rediscovering things I could do for myself that would be Right. Because if we don't feel that we can actually affect autonomy the outside so world in any way, I mean, like, what do we do? Essentially affect like, how do you the outside world and have a sense of mastery the and be a, uh, be the presupposition that you have no effect on the world. <laughs> That's pretty depressing, don't you think? It's like, well, so I'm just here to look at a bunch of things, experience a bunch of sensory uh, sensory inputs, and then just turn back into into dust. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a recipe for nihilism right there. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, maybe maybe try a little bit more of a sophisticated approach. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's see what uh, says here. Back in uh, Tosh and McCleary uh, from 1961 and 1992, other studies have demonstrated that an important element in the level of endurance of solitary confinement is prior knowledge of its duration. This is huge. Uncertainty as to its duration promotes a sense of helplessness. Finite sentences imposed for acknowledged acts seem to or seem less prone to inspire panic. Another study concluded that it 
uncertainty is a critical factor relating to the outcome of hostility and aggression. So you guys all remember, uh, you know, now we're on day, what, 123 of 15 days to flatten the curve? You know what I mean? Oh, just two more weeks, guys. Two more weeks. And if you, you do that like six or seven times, people are like, uh, okay, so you just have to extend it by two weeks indefinitely. So this whole, like, you can only do it for two weeks is all bullshit. Because <laughs> all you have to just do that is every two weeks, just redo it for two weeks, and it makes it completely indeterminate for how long we're actually going to be in this situation. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so, I mean, as of now, it's uh, the current date's August 2nd, so we are uh, kind of in phase three at this point now. So just yesterday, I think a bunch of things that have been closed for months and months and months have, have uh, finally reopened. So it was nice to finally actually get out and have some sushi again for a change. Haven't been back to our favorite sushi place in what seems like six months. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's uh, it was finally nice to be able to get back out. Everything seems you know fairly normal. There was no lineup to get in. You just have to wear a mask until you're seated, and then you can take it off, and then nobody cares. <laughs> so I, I think we've all kind of all agreed. We've all given each other the wink and the nod, like, okay, guys, let's let's just do this for a little while, and we'll all pretend like we give a shit. <laughs> when all the deaths go away, we can all pat ourselves on the back for our benevolent generosity for all wearing masks for four months, and that's what saved everybody. And it's like, okay, if we can all just believe that. We might actually get back to normal and everybody can feel good about not being a, an, an old person killer or something like that, right? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we'll keep playing that uh, for a little while. So, <laughs> knowing how long the experience is going to last is therefore a clear mitigating factor available to those responsible for placing a prisoner in segregation. Uh, so, let's see here. Here's another quote uh, from a former prisoner in the U.S. Uh, cited in that Shalev book. So, uh, I mean, there is, are still times where I go to the walk-in and after the movie's over and, you know, it's like I'm in the dark and all of a sudden all the lights come on and boom, all these millions of people are around me. I'm like, you know, looking around. Okay, okay, who's going to hit me? Who's going to, you know, who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? I mean, you feel real uncomfortable and then all of a sudden you start shaking, you know? You feel your heartbeat and realize, wait a minute, I'm in a theater. What am I tripping on? There ain't nobody out here all crazy. I'm not in prison. It gets real uncomfortable when I'm around a big crowd. Like, sometimes, even when I go to the grocery store, I feel uncomfortable, you know? When people look at me, I'm wondering, you know, what are they looking at? So, kind of sounds like PTSD. A little bit, yeah. PTSD, man. Like, in a, about other people and about mm. other strangers. So, when you've been away from people for so long, when you're around them, all of a sudden, it doesn't feel like it did before. You start getting mm. paranoid. You start wondering, what are yeah. they thinking? What are they looking at? Your threat protection system. It's just going on overdrive, right? Everything yeah. around you looks like a snake. And that's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that snake detection system that we have has kept a lot of us alive for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And if you guys aren't familiar with what I'm talking about, uh, what this... Was it was it Young or Freud or one of these guys that went to the, the zoo for the snake reaction? Do you remember that? Mm, yeah. I can't remember which, which psychologist sure which it was, but the idea was he would go to the snake pit and he would try to get the snake to lunge at his face and he would try to not react to it. And he couldn't. There was an, under no circumstances mm -hmm. could he not immediately recoil when a snake was biting at his face. And what it was, it was a, it's basically a system that allows us to detect uh, moving objects and differences in color in the lower half of our visual field. So this is the, one of the reasons that allows us to detect ripe fruit for nutrition, mm -hmm. but also to detect snakes. Because when you mm -hmm. see one moving on the ground, you can see it and are aware of it almost before you see it. You know, and then when you jump and get out of the way, the, and the reason for this is because if you actually had to consciously process that there was a snake there trying to kill you, you would be dead long before you moved. So that's mm. why it has to be at the level of instinct. And that's mm. uh, the same mechanism that is probably being put on overdrive when all these people in social isolation see everything around them as a threat when they come out of it. 
Yeah, I think you're talking about the amygdala, which one is the, yes. one of the oldest parts of our brain. That's right, the fear center of the brain. And, then, and this is a part that's closely tied to memory as well. So if you have a very negative circumstance, you're going to remember that way, way more than you are if it was a positive circumstance because mm -hmm. negative circumstances and learning from them are what keep you alive. So back to the book here. My character and personality have undergone many negative changes and I am now very paranoid, a uh, very paranoid and suspicious person. The paranoia has become so extensive that I find it impossible to trust anyone anymore and I have developed the tendency to hate people for no apparent reason. Wow. Sounds a little prescient, don't you think? People hating on people for, for no other reason. Like, uh, on social media, there was a, a woman in our group that made this big virtue signaling post about how she was quitting her job to allow room for uh, a person of color to take the job instead. And a bunch of people in the chat were just lambasting her for her hollow virtue signaling and all the nonsense. Like, yeah, lady, we're all not all that impressed with your, your virtue mm -hmm. signaling and all that stuff. And she comes back and was like, well, I'm so disappointed to see all the hate in these comments. I'm like, there was no hate in any of the comments. It was all just indifference and sarcastic dismissal. But you seriously think people hate you because they disagree with you. And I think this this isolation plays into that as well, where people who get in their own heads too much tend to think that people who disagree with them hate them. And then they'll respond to that with aggression because they see it as an attack. Hey, I'm just, I'm just trying to do some self-defense here, right? It's like, no, 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 you're just attacking someone for disagreeing with you. It's not self-defense, right, if you're the one initiating force. so Yeah, so it could be a projection mm -hmm. as well. So uh, for... Unable to regain the necessary social skills for leading a normal life, some may continue to live in relative social isolation after their release. In this sense, solitary confinement operates against one of the main purposes of the prison, which is to rehabilitate prisoners and facilitate their reintegration into society. So I think this is kind of interesting because I think a lot of people, once this lockdown is over, are going to realize, hey, ordering my groceries from, I don't know, Fast Dash or Grocery Gateway or one of these, that works totally fine for me. I'll pay the $3.50 for every delivery because it's less money than it would take me to get to the store and back on gas. Or it's so negligible that it doesn't make a difference. Or people ordering things from Amazon. It'll get here in a day or two, and I don't have to go anywhere. Right to my door. Like, that's going to be uh, very difficult to go back to. Like, I don't, I'm not, mm -hmm. Why would I go back to a mall and shop if I can get it here in the same amount of time? Right? Good question. I mean, yeah. like, there's nothing to say that two-day delivery won't become same-day delivery. You know? <laughs> in the amount of time it would take me to drive there and back, they can just send it from there right to me. Half the time. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the things that we've adopted to help us cope with isolation will become a replacement for what we used to do before isolation. And there, there's a bit of a danger there too, right? Where the solitary confinement become sort of a way of life for everybody because it's so easy to do it. Yeah, you know? and there's certain conveniences that we can we can use right. in order to, to deal with it. Yeah, and for people that are working and living at home all the time, you might never actually have to leave your house. You have everything delivered in. You know, never leave, <laughs> never go outside, never get a, a suntan, take vitamin D supplements so you don't need to get any suntan. <laughs> Stuff like that, right? You might get a lot more pasties. Yes, <laughs> yes, it'll be a pasty few months, but, uh, you know, at least you can claim you're safe. Um, also, I just want to mention, too, like, for me, uh, something small, like just driving around in my car was something that helped, too, because I think it, it helped reestablish that sense of freedom and, in a way kind of realize oh it's not as bad as like the media's making it yeah. out to be you know what i mean so that was there was that um contrast between reality and what was being promoted on tv and right. of course you know i was seeing a lot a d decent amount of american news as well but you know they have both canadian and american you know media major media outlets have that um 
sort of fearful, you know, aspect of it. Yeah, there is a concerted effort by many in the media to keep you afraid. Because like we were talking about before, that snake detection mechanism that allows you to be really responsive to threats, that's what the media is using to get you to click on their articles and to watch their their news reports and all that stuff because it's the eyeballs they want because that's Mm -hmm. what they're selling to advertisers. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with advertising, but keep in mind, you're not being informed, you're being sold, right? Mm-hmm. If you're not paying for a good or service, it's because you are the good or service, right? You're the one being delivered to advertisers, and these people aren't in the business of informing you, they're in the business of delivering you to advertisers. So I wouldn't consider yourself being informed by watching the news, you're just being made afraid so that you'll buy into the narrative. Yeah, which is why it's important to listen to a variety mm-hmm. of sources, especially more independent ones that... You know, don't yeah. have a certain vested interest. Yeah, the uh, the independent uh, journalist like Tim Pool, I've uh, I've noticed he's been getting a lot more popular recently as he's uh, he is a bit of a milk toast fence sitter when it comes to many issues. But at least he doesn't really take an opinion too strongly one way or the other. So okay. I can kind of listen to him and be like, okay, you're not pushing an, a narrative on me. You're just being like, hey, this is what what the narrative is. So it's pretty moderate. Yeah. Oh, very moderate, like almost yeah. to a fault. <laughs> We're just like, okay, well, what's your opinion on it? Hey, I don't know what to tell you, man. Right. <laughs> Look, man, I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you know, I think with with Tim Pool, yeah. I find the uh, what I always picture whenever he says that, like it's just him on like a subway at like four o'clock in the morning. There's three other people on the subway, and some crazy guy is just going on this huge rant, and then asks him a direct question, and Tim's just like, "Look, man, I I don't know what to tell you, man." <laughs> right. That's just sort of his opinion on everything, but at least I don't feel I'm getting sold out when I nice. watch his uh, his show. So. In another article from the We Forum, um, in late February 2020, right before European countries mandated various forms of lockdowns, The Lancet published a review of 24 studies documenting the psychological impact of quarantine, the restriction of movement of people who have potentially been exposed to a contagious disease. In short, and perhaps unsurprisingly, people who are quarantined are very likely to develop a wide range of symptoms of psychological stress and disorder, including low mood, insomnia, stress, anxiety, anger, irritability, emotional exhaustion, depression, and post-traumatic stress symptoms. Low mood and irritability specifically stand out as being very common, as the study notes. Hmm. So, also, it's important to note like being stuck in a house where, you know, there might be some sort of abuse, emotional or physical, mm-hmm. I think has been a big deal for a lot of people. And it can just add to the feelings of being trapped, right? Yeah, and if only of... only one life is saved, as they say, right? But uh, let's not talk about all the people that are stuck in those situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just can add to a sense of futility right yeah and, and all the, the symptoms that were listed here like the stress the low mood insomnia irritability depression emotional exhaustion these are all the same symptoms we see in prison populations right exactly so angela favaro a professor of psychiatry at the padua university in italy was involved in an ongoing international study that looked into the physical and mental health issues that have been caused by the quarantine so here's what uh, she reported The lockdown required an immense physical and psychological adaptation to a very different lifestyle. This was combined with major social isolation, and this aspect has far more negative consequences on the elderly, people who live alone, and on teenagers. After that, we have people who have already had mental and physical health problems. They will, of course, experience uh, even more negative effects. They will be at an even higher risk to have new psychological problems that will include dark periods and even suicidal behavior. 
So although we don't really have any detailed statistics on it, uh, have you seen a lot of cases that are obviously related to trauma and having to deal with the quarantine? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's... it's not, This whole thing is naturally, I think, a, a traumatic event because right. it is a shock to our system, mm -hmm. essentially, and the combination of the uncertainty of what of what was happening and not knowing clearly what was going on, especially in the beginning. And um, just the thought of having to stay in one place for so long, I think, is in itself potentially traumatizing as well, depending on what your your living environment is. Yeah, right? I mean, when we had the, uh, the two weeks to flatten the curve, we were all like, okay, I could put up with this for two weeks. I could do mm. the two-week vacation paid by the government. Sure. And, just and then, going. like, what, four months later, we're like, uh, okay, this this might not have been a good idea. Yeah, yeah. And just, yeah, being able to, to see certain, to see people again and to go out a bit more, it was just such a relief mm -hmm. in certain ways. So so let's look at some of the uh, the death toll, uh, death toll statistics. So this was from back about halfway through May. Uh, when the Colorado health officials changed how they count the number of people uh, who lost, uh, I guess, their lives to the, the outbreak. So the state uh, said that the COVID-19 death toll dropped by nearly 300 people who had contracted the virus but died of other causes that might have been uh, related to the infection. Uh, let's see, Colorado also reported uh, 1,091 coronavirus deaths under its prior method, but on Friday, the state classified that 878 people have died as a direct result of covid uh, well, another 272 had tested positive but died of other causes. Uh, so it is nice that they're kind of distinguishing those two things back uh, back then. Because I know there uh, does appear mm -hmm. to be uh, a bit of an incentive to inflate the numbers. And I think a lot of this has to do with federal funding. Like if the, if the incentive is, we'll send you money if you have a lot of coronavirus cases, well then it's like obviously the number of cases are going to go up. Right? It's like we will f pay you tons and tons of money to find people with COVID. Mm -hmm. You think people aren't going to just make it up? <laughs> not in every case obviously but if it was a choice of well this person could have died from asphyxiation or they could have died because of covid causing the asphyxiation and they can really just go either way on it which way do you think they're going to go on it right mm -hmm. and now of course it seems like they're running out of cases and that's why we see the the numbers going down slowly but i think a lot of the inflated numbers are coming from statistical aberrations rather than anything to do with reality and while this has been exposed recently mm -hmm. too yeah, so like the, what we were saying before, the places in Florida that were reporting 100% cases and all that stuff. So I think you really got to take some of the official statistics with a bit of a grain of salt. You know, because you're probably not going to tell you the whole truth. Yeah. And lastly, um, it's important to um, recognize that major events that are witnessed or experienced by a large group can affect how people feel and act, and sometimes such events can result in cultural shifts and societal changes. And there are a number of events that may cause collective trauma in a group, such as wars, military conflict, terrorist attacks, natural disasters, economic disasters, uh, mass shootings, violence, genocide, and pandemics. Basically pure chaos. Absolutely. The emergence of possibility from the ether. Most of that can be bad, so when people have uh, some massive event like this, like a society lockdown pandemic, the the collective trauma from it could extend into the future, into further generations. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like when, uh, like when Molyneux talks about when he was a kid in England, and people talked about World War II, which is only 20 years prior. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like, they would talk about World War II the way we would talk about 9-11. Right, right. Which is crazy, because it's like, that was just 20 years ago for them. Mm-hmm. But it seems now, it seems like it's so far removed from, like, it seems like ancient history. You know, but this was just a couple generations ago that it was, we were going to war over these ideologies. And now, and now we're clamoring for, them, clamoring for them all over again. Right? As, yeah. if, as if we never, never learned our lesson the first time. So some of the impacts that this collective trauma can have at the societal level... Uh, would include things like increased individual and collective fear, which obviously is (laughs) something the media probably wants to push for the sake of their own bottom line. Uh, Damaged national pride. Uh, I think the idea of national pride is racist now. Uh, So that's already long gone. (laughs) (laughs) Feelings of humiliation, uh, identity crisis, increases in feelings feelings of vulnerability, and a heightened vigilance for new threats. Uh, Yeah, I can see how that could probably lead to some problems too if we're all kind of on edge all the time where if somebody decides that this one thing is subjectively a problem for me it'd be a lot easier now for that to become a huge objective problem for everybody else (laughs) so i think we got to be careful when people are trying to push the fear narrative because we got plenty to be afraid of i mean not as much as we did a hundred years ago but there's plenty of things out there that can still kill you but we can we can also prepare against them but the more we destroy our economy the less we're going to be able to prepare for those inevitabilities right so if this is one of the issues I have with the climate change debate, we're like, oh, okay, well, if we just shut down the whole economy, we can fix the issue. It's like, or we grow the economy so that in 10 years, we have way more money to fix the issue. And that's what mm-hmm. we've been doing. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea that is like, if we just stop everything, that'll be the solution. It's like, no, that's never the solution. The solution is more innovation. Because that's how we've gotten ourselves out of all these jams in the past. So Our ability to adapt. Yes, it's going to be our ability to adapt and overcome I think that's gonna be uh, it's gonna get us out of this one. Strangely enough, it seems like up here we don't have quite the same draconian restrictions as many areas of the United States, which I find kind of funny because we're supposed to be the the socialist totalitarian dictatorship up here. <laughs> but uh, I think we just probably have a more reasonable group of people up here. They're just kind of like, yeah, let's maybe just take it easy on that there, eh, bud? You know. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, it's not like we're uh, we're not gonna run into those problems if we're not careful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just sincerely hope that we've all learned (laughs) some valuable things through this whole experience and how we can go forward with it in a less you know destructive way on multiple levels right yeah i mean this this year has been like really interesting like for the first time like i've uh this year it was like when it first started getting locked down i mean now everything's sort of back to normal around here but when it first started locking down i mean it'd be like you'd reach out to your neighbors and be like hey like i'm going to the grocery store do you guys need anything never would have done that before you know, don't really do it now because the shortages aren't around, but it's like you, you check in with your neighbors and you see like, yo, you guys squared away for, for this, that, like we got a thunderstorm coming, you guys got power, like do you need charge, like anything like that. Like these mm-hmm. are things that have emerged that never would have before because we never would have thought about it. But now yeah. it's sort of like, oh shit, like we better make sure that our neighbors are squared away, our families are squared away and, and all that stuff. And maybe this is the first time in our lives we've really had to think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, improving the community connection. And yeah, so, just... I mean, thank goodness for that, right? I mean, if mm-hmm. we were to go on the same path that we were to continue to go down and never had an experience like this, I mean, would we even be prepared if something like this were to happen again? You know? Maybe this will be just the trial run we need to ensure that we're adequately prepared the next time this shit happens. The next time the Chinese government wants to undermine our economics by releasing a bunch of viruses or seeds or whatever else into our into our country. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and push back against uh, socialism, too. Because that's going to be what brings this kind of shit about. Of course. 
So was there anything else uh, you wanted to add on this one, Sam? Well, um, I just, I'm just glad that we were able to talk about um, the certain psychological effects that I think need need to be brought more to the forefront, and that has you know affected our society, especially as I've talked to, you know, friends, friends and clients, and. Um, you know, and as you mentioned too, there is, I think there is a silver lining in terms of how seriously we uh, consider our social connections and how um, beneficial they can be, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of checking in with each other and, yeah. and all that. And, um, and yeah, just taking a look at the effects of isolation, I think gives us some hints at what can, what can help us as well. And um, hopefully we can, you know, go forward in a more productive way if this um, if something like this happens. Yeah. So, I mean, I agree. I think that if uh, if we take all the lessons we can from this and try to create a more robust and resilient society in the future, I think we'll Mm -hmm. all be better off. But I I strongly think that's going to start with ourselves. You know what I mean? We got to make sure that we are prepared for Mm -hmm. the next crisis. Not, mm-hmm. not worry about this getting the society prepared nonsense. That'll happen on its own. You know, that will balance itself, as Trudeau likes to say, if, <laughs> if we already do it for ourselves, right? Because if we're already all square away, there's not going to be an element of society that isn't. It's a little utopian, I know, but <laughs> let's, let's at least orient ourselves in that direction, shall we? So yeah. anyway, thanks very much for tuning into this episode on the Sorted Skeptics, guys, and we will see you on the next one when we discuss whatever next crisis comes down the pipe. Have a good one.